If a man kills any human life, he will be put to death. But according to Exodus 21, 22 through 24, the destruction of the fetus is not a capital offense. Clearly then, in contrast to the mother, the fetus is not reckoned as a soul. End quote. Hello and welcome to Don't Repeat This, a podcast where we discuss topics that you're not supposed to bring up at the dinner table. Uh, I'm Nate, and as always, I'm joined by my partners in impoliteness, Gail and Vicky. <laughs> Hello. Hi. <laughs> so today's topic is going to be uh, a big one. Um, we're talking about abortion, um, and I think we'll be kind of covering a whole bunch of uh, topics surrounding abortion, but kind of specifically, one of the things we're, we're going to be talking about is Christianity's weird fixation with abortion um, and the creepy indoctrination tactics that they use to manipulate people into voting for, quote unquote, pro-life uh, candidates. Um, Gail and I recently watched uh, the documentary Jesus Camp, um, and Vicky, I think you had watched it a while back, right? Yeah, um, I watched it in college, um, just randomly. And then, you know, a few weeks ago, after some of our discussions that we've had, I was like, maybe I should watch this again. Because um, I remember it being crazy back then. But it's, you know, watching it after knowing um, both of you and your stories, it made it even somehow more crazy to me. So if you're not familiar with it, uh, Jesus Camp is a 2006 documentary. Um that looks into the world of um, fundamentalist religious training. Um, and it specifically targets, the, this religious training specifically targets children. Um, and the, the branch of fundamentalist or evangelical Christianity that they, that they focus in on is the, the charismatic Pentecostal um, area. So for those of you who, who do kind of, are kind of aware of the um, of the various denominations in, in Christianity or in evangelicalism. That's the um, the group that it focuses on. Um, what um, what did you all think? Um, I know Gail, you you watched it with me. Like we watched it pretty recently. I mean, we kept pausing the video because you're like, <laughs> we need to talk about this. I thought you know what I, what what hit me about the movie was that even though it was 2006 and the political leaders were different players at the time, I found it really really um, pertinent to today and what's going on currently with our whole legal the whole American legal system. It's different in Canada, but in the states with you know the Supreme Court justices, they in 2006 they're already very poised the right wing evangelical fundamentalists to try and make sure that they're thinking through the legislative stuff and how they can get their their appointed people and the ones they want into the court systems to change laws. Like, I was amazed at how organized they were as a group, not just in indoctrinating, but also in trying to be smart politically to get their, their anti-abortion uh, laws pushed forward uh, to make sure that whoever they were voting for, that they were really, you know, aligning themselves with the right people to get their wishes passed, which... I thought it just applied so much. Like, I'm looking at it today, and I'm saying, like, this was made a while ago, but it really applies right now. Mm -hmm. Like, it's super, uh, it, it applies to what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing that really struck me as I was watching it was the branding and the marketing of their values, um, almost as, like, sales pitches. And, and so, like, of course, the indoctrination of children was 
horrifying disturbing to watch um and the emotional manipulation that they they use on children to um to really get them to believe this stuff early on and so they continue to believe it you know into adulthood and then um evangelize the next generation was crazy but as a if you look at it as like a marketing strategy or branding strategy it kind of makes sense that um you know the evangelical right would have backed President Trump. Um, I can't believe I just said President Trump. I'm going to say the president or Trump, but I don't want to say them together because it's so gross. Um, but yes. Uh, so, so as a marketing strategy, getting someone who has like a lot of experience with like marketing and branding and, um, and is also in the camp of like conservatism and really being conservative, um, in terms of abortion rights and um, women's health issues, you know, it makes sense that they would have really backed him. And and they were a huge part of why he um, he won the 2016 election. So this this issue is one piece of that, obviously. But like, I think it's a huge piece because it's it's obviously been around. It's been contentious for many, many, many years, like hundreds of years, if 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 um you know, if, if there is a way to abort a chi- um, uh, a pregnancy, um, then, you know, it, it would have been done um, even, you know, back in pre-colonial times. But now um, we're still having these discussions and to still have these discussions um, and have them be so heated and so emotional, um, you know, and then to have the president be so heated and so emotional about them is like, it's crazy. It's crazy. I think you're you're totally on point, Vicky, with your your point about how it's become a very uh, centerpiece sort of issue. I mean, those weren't the exact words, I think, but the idea of how important this topic is. Um, I was reading something that said abortion, the only word that can make followers of Jesus vote against everything Jesus ever talked about because of one issue that Jesus never talked about. Yeah. And I like it was a watching that video Jesus Camp, I mean, Nate and I were discussing how we did see, maybe not put in very blatant ways like that, um, the anti-abortion rhetoric, but it was still there in our congregations growing up. I think you probably more so than me, Nate, maybe, because you did come from a fundamentalist background. But, like, we we were both used to the very strong words of, of on anti-abortion stuff, like that it's murdering a kid, that... Um, and that issue being like at the forefront and being really important and, and it being part of our Christian identity as evangelicals that we don't support abortion. Nate thoughts. <laughs> oh, um, absolutely. Uh, coming from a fundamentalist background, that was kind of that. I mean, enemy number one, wasn't necessarily abortion, but it was talked about in, in those kinds of terms. Um, What's fascinating to me and something that I, um, as I was sort of looking into the history of um, abortion in the U.S. and its relationship to Christianity or why, you know, why, why Christians, evangelicals in particular, um, talk about it so much. Um, what I found fascinating was that, so one of the, the myths that's kind of out there, um, and I think this was this was discussed in um, a story in Politico back in 2014, um, and uh, HuffPost did uh, did a story on this back in 2012, um, and then more recently, um, there was an episode of Throughline that covered the kind of history of evangelicalism's relationship with. Um, abortion 
And one thing that I found fascinating, um, the title of the Politico article is called um, The Real Origins of the Religious Right. Um, so there's this myth that exists that the religious right came about in response to abortion, that like there was this zeal with which evangelicals had um, uh, addressed this idea of killing and murdering the unborn, which was how they, they would put it. Um, but that wasn't even the messaging that really, I mean, eventually the, the, what became the religious light, religious right coalesced around that, but it didn't, it didn't happen. Evangelicals by and large were kind of uninterested, um, in the abortion debate. And in fact, some of the bigger organizations within evangelicalism, um, held to what we would consider nowadays more of a pro-choice kind of argument. Um, so the um, so kind of tracing back the history a little bit. When did that start to shift where that became more of the, the centering issue? Yeah. So like in, in the 1960s, um, the end of the 1960s, you had um, the the desegregation of public schools. Um, but what was going on was that you had white students leaving the public school system in droves. And um, Christians began to set up their own public schools, or well, not public schools, but Christians began to set up their own private schools, really, and as a way to avoid having to desegregate as a way to avoid having to go to schools that, that black people attended as well. Um, and that was more of the rallying cry. The fact that eventually, and I'll just kind of try to summarize this uh, a little bit, but eventually um, the Christians who were starting these like white only schools, essentially um, they were faced with losing tax exempt status. There were a couple um, uh, U.S. District Court cases that removed tax exempt status from these um, schools that only white students were attending. So, if you were not um, allowing black people to attend your schools, you would lose your tax exempt tax exempt status. That was the rallying cry. Um, people like Jerry Falwell Sr. Um, and, uh, Bob Jones senior were very involved in that. In fact, Bob Jones university, which was, uh, my alma mater, um, they did not, I don't think, I mean, I could have this, uh, mixed up. I don't think they, they re regained their tax exempt status until I think the, the year 2000, um, which was the year that they also got rid of their, um, no interracial dating policy. Wow. <laughs> Anyway, that messaging was not really helping because it wasn't it wasn't rallying the entire um, the entirety of the religious conservatives um, because some conservatives, especially in more diverse areas, weren't were all that excited about um, school segregation or desegregation. The debate didn't really uh, connect with them. So this. Um, this religious conservative, um, Paul Weirich, who was kind of a political activist, I don't know if you've heard of the Heritage Foundation, um, that's a, an extremely conservative uh, organization. He was really interested in getting Chris, uh, evangelicals to rally around abortion. Like that was 
something that he was kind of pushing evangelicals to to get behind. Um, but most evangelicals didn't even really care. Like, in fact, the Southern Baptist Convention released a statement that was um, pretty pro-choice. And in 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, their joint resolution, ah, here it is, they wrote... We call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, carefully uh, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. And that position was reaffirmed in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade, and again in 1976. Christianity Today, which is the the hallmark publication of evangelicalism, um, they published in 1968, um, God does not regard the fetus as a soul, no matter how far gestation has progressed. That's wild. <laughs> Plainly the facts. If a man kills any human life, he will be put to death. But according to Exodus 21, 22 through 24, the destruction of the fetus is not a capital offense. Clearly then, in contrast to the mother, the fetus is not reckoned as a soul. End quote. I find that so wild that Christianity Today published that in the 60s. It really shows the change of opinion on event, like evangelical position on it, because I can't imagine that publication taking a position so strong pro, pro-choice and not anti-abortion, you know, not a pro-life stance. It's that it really, um, yeah, I, had, I did not know that piece of history. I actually saw um, a tweet from Tim Keller who just, like, for those who don't know who this dude is, he has half a million followers. He's a very prominent voice on Twitter, and he has a very prominent voice in evangelical circles. He's pretty well respected. Um, But anyway, he put this up on Twitter um, less than a month ago. He said, it was September 13th, he said, the early Christian church social project was a unique kind of human community that defies categories, but it had at least five elements. So he's trying to paint a picture of what early Christianity looks like. And here are his five points that how they defied uh, human community or the five categories. He goes, they were multiracial and multi-ethnic. He said they were highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. He said they were, they had a non-retaliatory uh, position marked by a commitment to forgiveness. He said they were strongly, here's the, here's the, here's the, the one, this is the reason I'm quoting him. He said they were strongly pr- and practically against abortion and infants, in, infanticide, infanticide. Yeah. infanticide. Thank yeah. you. And revolutionary regarding the ethics of sex. And he said each of these five elements was there because Christians sought to submit to biblical authority. And I'm not going to read all the rest because he kind of continues on about, you know, how, just what the church looked like, the early church. And it's such a, when I read that, I was like, where is he getting these from? How, like, which factual documents in early church history is he pulling these ideas from? The idea that they're strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. You know, where did that come from? Where has he seen that in the Bible? I haven't seen that in the Bible. Where is he getting that this was what the early church looked like? But he's an evangelical painting a picture of what it means to be pro-life to his followers, saying like, hey, if you want us, and there's a lot of a push, let's return to the early church. Let's model the community that evolved after Jesus, right after Jesus, because that's how we want to be, because they follow the Bible. Although it's funny, because the Bible wasn't a canon during that the time of the early church. It wasn't even decided on until 350, like, afterwards. So it's... <laughs> It's um it's an interesting rewriting of history to even stick the topic of abortion into these like five principles of the early church. So like 
this is very, this is a very big evangelical talking point. Clearly, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's being pushed very strongly. I feel like it makes me think a little bit of the Marriage Equality Act, where a lot of the evangelical church was trying to push for not allowing, you know, uh, gays mm-hmm. to have the same rights. But once they sort of lost that battle, I feel like this is now, this is where they're going. You know, this is where they're putting their energy and their strength and their fight behind this. You know, when he said being revolutionary regarding ethics of sex, it's still not very specific that he's trying to target the gay community, even though I have my suspicions on what he's trying to say there. Maybe it's coded, but he's very straightforward about when it comes to abortion. He just put the topic there. They're against abortion. So um, I think, yeah, definitely it has been an evolution in evangelical thought process when it comes to this topic. Yeah, I find that um, particularly unnerving. (laughs) how um i don't know it just it it strikes me as incredibly cynical that you have a movement um of christians that are trying to find something to get the larger religious movement of christians um to rally behind and it's like let's see what sticks so (laughs) racism Let's see. Let's, can we get racism to, to stick? Well, no, Christians are pretty uh, divided um, on that. So, um, Although once upon a time, a lot of white Christians were pro-segregation and were very pro-owning slaves once upon a time. But now that's no longer a great rallying cry. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And even even once upon a time, you know, white Christians who were abolitionists were anti um um, integration. They were like, you could be, you don't have to be a slave. You should be free, but I don't want you hanging out with my kids. Yeah, definitely don't marry anyone in my family. Those, th- it's amazing how long it took for even the the interracial marriage laws to pass in the states. It's uh, quite telling. Of you know, you can be free, but stay away from mm-hmm. my kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's, I, I saw a good quote that kind of explained why this rallying cry around abortion really is it why it works or why it's a convenient topic. It was saying how the unborn are a convenient group of people to advocate for because they never make demands of you. They're morally uncomplicated, unlike the incarcerated or addicted or chronically poor. They don't resent your condescension or complain that you're not politically correct. Uh, Unlike widows, they don't ask you to question patriarchy. Unlike orphans, they don't need money, education, or childcare. Unlike aliens, they don't bring all that racial, cultural, and religious baggage that you dislike. They allow you to feel good about yourself without any work at creating or maintaining relationships. And when they're born, you can forget about them because they cease to be unborn. It's almost as if by being born, they've died to you. You can love the unborn and then advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power, or privilege, without reimagining social structures, apologizing, or making reparations to anyone. They're, in short, the perfect people to love if you want to claim to love Jesus, but actually dislike (laughs) people who breathe. And it went on to be like, immigrants, prisoners, the sick, the poor, widows, orphans, all groups that are specifically mentioned in the Bible, they get thrown under the bus for the unborn. And I thought that was a really powerful quote. It was by Dave Barnhart. I saw that one and I just thought, that's quite interesting. I hadn't thought of how convenient of a people group the unborn are to rally around versus all those other topics. Yeah. You know what I'm thinking of as you're saying this is, um, I don't know if you guys are fans of Monty Python, but um, I'm not a huge fan of British humor, but um, my husband, who's also our producer, is um, he's it's on a lot so so i've i've gotten more used to it so i was i've been thinking about um there's like this one song that they do called every sperm is sacred every sperm is sacred 
Every sperm is great. And it's Protestant. Oh, wow. It's it's from the Protestant like Anglican perspective, and it is mocking Catholics, like hard mocking Catholics. If a sperm is wasted, God gets quite irate. And I, the first time I saw this, I was this is probably also why I don't like British humor. I was really Catholic, and I was like that. Like, not really Catholic in that I would go to church, but really Catholic in that I was like, I- I'm offended. So the whole song is basically like, look at these fucking Catholics. They think that, like, every time a guy comes into his girlfriend or whatever, like, that that's, that's like, the most precious thing that can happen. Like, they're so stupid. Um, and what struck me as interesting is, like, that's, that's you know, the UK, whatever. It's, it's dated. I don't know when that song came out it was like part of a a a movie right yeah um (laughs) mike is nodding um but what's interesting is in the u.s we see protestant um protestants like evangelicals and catholics having the same view of abortion is wrong all lives that are unborn are really important um and like there's other places in the world where they're like, you guys are fucking weird. Like that's really strange, um, and it's laughable. It's it, it's laughable because nowhere in the Bible does it. I mean, you guys know better than I do, but nowhere in the Bible does it say um, abortion is wrong or that uh, conception um, is where the start of a soul begins. It just doesn't make sense to me there's there's very like mixed messages in the bible i mean on plenty of topics there are contradictory uh views which i grew up being told the bible was consistent and there was no contradictions and if i thought so it's because i didn't understand clearly and so they'll tell you what the correct position is and which verses you sort of need to put aside because they're confusing in order to have the right pick the right verses that kind of give you the direction but on the pro-life um on the pro-life side of things the anti-abortionists it was like verses like you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a psalm. But it doesn't say anything about when the human soul is is there. It just talks about God being involved in that pregnancy and in that life. But it doesn't make a dis- it doesn't, you know, it's not addressing abortion as a topic, whereas that would be used to be like, see, start a life before they come out of the mom. Um, whereas there's other Bible passages that, you know, they didn't cover, which talk about, you know, if a woman is unfaithful to a guy then make her drink um, a poisonous mixture that won't kill her if she hasn't cheated. And this is literally a thing, God, you know, from God to the people on how to deal with this scenario. But if she has cheated when she drinks this, it's going to burn and kill the baby in her stomach. It's going to cause a, a, an abortion. That's weird. That's in the Bible. That's like it's weird. In the same, it's in the same group of, but like it, it doesn't contain the same sort of message that God is pro-life, you know? And you sort of see the story with the Egyptians and uh, God striking down all the firstborn sons, right? And like, you know, saving the Hebrews. But like that idea of pro-life, like, uh, and how God responds to human beings is it's it's an it's a it's a, actually something you have to grapple with if you're using scripture as your baseline. Like when Keller was saying the Bible, the clear authority of the Bible, it's like okay, like what about this story? What about this one? What about it's not a consistent message, and it doesn't really say anything with the word abortion. It's people pulling out little parts and saying this is what God thinks of life and where it starts, and the Bible just doesn't really give a clear one clear message on it at all. 
least that's my perspective from what I've read. Nate, thoughts on that one? Yeah, I agree. Uh, <laughs> I the, the other thing, actually, I thought that popped into my mind as you were um, as you were talking about that was that um, most of the writers of the Bible that do give any kind of indication about life itself seem to argue that um, life begins at first breath. So at the point that the fetus exits the womb, that's the beginning of life. I don't know. I mean, I like science does, hasn't come to any consensus um, about that. Uh, I don't think that we're really in any position um, to make arguments about when life starts, but that's not really the point of the abortion debate anyway yeah yeah like in jesus camp when they were really like emphasizing you murdering babies you know and that sort of programming yeah, and like that. one thing that they said i'm sorry to cut you off but like one thing that they said sorry, during Nate. that <laughs> during that uh, uh film is specifically in like the indoctrination of anti-abortion um ideology to children was children um First of all, they had like these little plastic babies and they all held them in their hands and they were like, this is what a baby looks like at three months and this is what it looks like at six months. And they're like, like they're little toys, like baby dolls. And then they said, you know, a third of your friends would be here today with you. But unfortunately, they were murdered and ma really making kids feel like, you know, if not for abortion, they would have no friends, let alone the fact that like these kids are homeschooled, they don't go to regular school, they're not allowed to really interact with secular children, um, and the only time that they can really congregate is at these evangelical, like at church or at these evangelical like playgroups. Um, it, it it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, I, I just think it's strange. Sorry, <laughs> it was yeah. shocking. Yeah, I mean, I definitely heard a lot of those sort of messages maybe not in the way that the, the jesus camp movie puts it out there but i mean we we collected money for um our church raised money for a, a christian group in the city a local group that would help teen moms um to care for their babies um i don't think they were directly saying we don't agree with abortion but it was like how do we help you know, people who decide to keep their babies. That was their sort of way. And I, I think that's maybe more of a reasonable approach if you really have an issue with abortion. But the messaging was still there that, you know, we need to figure out ways to to help and and to decrease abortions. And I think on this topic, I think people who are pro um, pro-choice as a whole would be happy if less people didn't have to get abortions, like if there was better contraceptives available. Like I, I had seen a, an article that, um, I forget which state, it was Colorado. They um, they were a good example of just how um, when you made contraception more available, uh, they saw a 10% decline in abortion rates after making birth control accessible. Like in terms of if your goal is to, to help so that people don't, end up needing abortions like no one thinks getting an abortion is a fun procedure to go through or wants to be put in that position you know like it's not it's you know it's a situation that people ha that's why you're getting an abortion it's an unwanted pregnancy why don't you think bigger picture of what actually helps to decrease abortion aside just criminalizing and making women into monsters like what approaches can we take because that making it illegal has not proven to decrease abortion rates historically right. hasn't done anything 
but what are the actual measures? And they're usually liberal governments and um, that are pushing for those kind of measures. And so 10% decline in abortion rates after making birth control more accessible. But it's interesting because sometimes the same groups that say, you know, we hate, you know, abortion are the same groups that don't want women to have access to birth control. It's the same people who are, you know, pushing that. And it's, I mean, to me, it it, it kind of goes with the statistics that I've seen, which is um, the drop in abortion rates, depending on if Republicans or liberals were in government. And this was based on the Center for Disease Control and the abortion rate statistics showed that under Reagan, there was a 4% drop in abortions under Bush there was a 4% drop in abortion. And so they're pushing, you know, vote for Republicans. They're going to decrease abortions. They're going to, you know, and then Clinton gets into power and there was a 30% drop in abortion <laughs> rates. Yeah. And then, and it's, that's, and then you go back to Bush. Guess how many? Guess what the percentage was under Bush? It was 3% that it dropped. And then Obama gets elected and it drops 26%. So like you see the big contrast between democratic governments when it comes to abortion and they're not, trying to make anything illegal. But for some reason, the policies they're putting into place or the way that they're structuring things is decreasing abortion rates. But yet, the evangelical right is so vocal about how we need to get these, you know, Republicans, we need to get them elected so that we can deal with the abortion topic. And it's like, who's really dealing with the abortion topic in a way that's making a difference? You know, in a way that's practically dropping abortion rates. And so I, when I was reading those statistics, so I, I didn't know that. I was very blown away. How do you market the topic of abortions to your general public and say, vote Republican so you can get rid of abortion, and yet you look at the history and it just doesn't reflect that picture at all? Yeah. Oh. In more left-leaning uh, governments, you you find that there's an emphasis on, on holist- a holistic approach to um to sexuality, to pregnancy, to uh, to abortion, to women's health, um, which all of those things are contributing factors. Um, but um, and and I'm not saying that you know uh, left leaning government is is necessarily the answer. But what I'm saying is I that- am. <laughs> okay, one more stat, Nate. Keep your train of thought. One more stat from last year. So under President Trump's term. Under this, you know, supposedly pro-life President Trump's term, I mean, he was the first president to walk in a pro-life march, and the right went crazy. And like, like he's our champion. Planned Parenthood set a record for abortions during his term. Just gonna make my case. I don't know. I kind of, I really lean like, if you really care about this topic, you should be voting Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, babe. Sorry about that. No, I, I would just like I would just say that um, stuff like. Like you were saying before, um, making birth control more accessible, you know, making and ensuring that's that stuff like birth control and contraception are covered, um, holistic, um, all encompassing, comprehensive sex education, mm-hmm. not this abstinence only. And, and I had neglected to look up um, the uh, the information on abstinence only education in, in the U.S., but I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was it under the the most recent Bush administration that abstinence only education was um, was kind of not mandated, but but practically for all intents and purposes mandated um, in in the country that like that was basically going to be taught as the, the predominant um, sex curriculum um in in schools which i think i think it's based off of the state i don't think it's a federal mandate because in new jersey um 
I did my we had we had a sex ed class um, in and I went to public school and it I mean education is really important right so we didn't have abstinence only education this was in 2011 2010 2011 I had this class and um, they they taught about like the different kinds of birth control they taught about um, different types of um, you know like what are the methods that aren't aren't as extreme as abortion like plan b or um you know and then they they also taught about you know abstinence as like abstinence is like you know the best way but like if you can't abstain like here are all of your other options but then they also the other half of that class was like how do you plan a family right like what what is it going to take financially logistically for you to be able to care for your child when you have a child and then we had um it was really, it was, this is my favorite project from that class was like having a plastic baby that would cry like every so often and you had to change its diaper and you had to like, like uh, soothe it. Um, and you, and you took that baby home for a weekend and then it had a little sensor inside of it. And, um, your grade would be based off of like how nurturing you were to that baby. And that really opened my eyes to like, this is not an easy thing to do. Um, and this is just for two days. I don't want to have to do this at all. So I'm glad that I had all that information about, you know, um, contraceptives, um, including plan B, as well as information about um, birth control, and then as well as information about like, health screenings, like STD testing and and, and all that stuff. But um, in states like Alabama, it's pretty much up to the school district to decide, you know, the curriculum. And by and large, a lot of those school districts are teaching um, abstinence-only education, it's easier. There's less work to put in, um, and it's less expensive. So it, if it aligns with their political views, like it makes sense for them to do that. And yet, it was so frustrating to me about all of that is that um, it completely ignores the human impulse to have sex. Like, you oh can't my talk about teenagers don't have sex okay so i was taught that as a teenager i shouldn't have sex i grew up in an evangelical (laughs) culture that told me to abstain from sex and i had sex as a teenager i did and i got pregnant at age 15 and i and and we were talking uh, before we started this this episode today and vicky i was saying like stuff you were bringing up was making me rethink through would i have um gone through with having a child i was 15 when i got pregnant 16 when i had my first child would I have taken that approach had I not been brought up? Would I have gotten pregnant? That's an even better question, maybe, than if I would have went through with not having an abortion because I was taught that way. But, like, if I would have had, like, hey, you know what? It's normal that people your age are interested in sex, and you might have sex. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Here's stuff to think through about if you're ready. But also, it's really important that you you use protection. Um I was against, like, I knew protection could prevent us from pregnancy, but my thought was I shouldn't be having sex. So carrying a condom with us meant we were already planning to break the rules. That's what that meant. So not having a condom meant we were saying to ourselves that we weren't going to do this. But ask a 15-year-old if they can be very consistent under pressure with your (laughs) hormones raging, right? You got your boyfriend and you're making out and you guys, things get heated. Ask, do you really want to trust a 15-year-old to that kind of decision of like, oh, now you have no condom. By the way, don't do anything. You know, like it's, it's really big foolishness. And I was in that sort of environment that told me, you're not allowed having sex. And I wasn't able to 
to follow through on that. You know, I was uh, probably what my evangelical community would consider weak, (laughs) you know, that I couldn't, but I was a teenager and I, you know, I I realized how, you know, impossible side of those, just how unrealistic uh, those sort of teachings are and the kind of shame it puts on, um, on teenagers. I mean, we, we could do a whole other episode and maybe we will on purity culture and what that looks like. But, um, it's basically this idea that you got to stay sexless, uh, until you're married and it sort of denies regular adolescent behavior and it makes it feel shameful and stigmatized really makes you feel guilty and awful as a human being for doing that. So getting a condom and being prepared for that would have meant I was being a horrible person. Yeah. You know, and then that put me in a position where there I was at age 15 having to make a decision about if I'm going to be a mom or not. Yeah. You know, and the messages that I was given about if I made a decision about abortion, what did that say about me and, and my value of of what I like? Yeah. It challenged all of my values. And so I went with what I was taught. You know, the stuff you saw in Jesus camp, those kind of messages resonated with me as a young person. And I was very influenced by what I was told. So um, there was no option in my mind on what I should do. And actually, my boyfriend uh, was very against me uh, carrying the baby to term and was trying to pressure me to get an abortion. Um, he was really strongly against me having the baby. Uh, so I was I was so determined because of what I was taught that I was like, I don't care what you think. I may, I'm, I'm not having an abortion and you could leave me if you want. I'll raise this kid by myself. And, you know, I was willing to take on so much responsibility because of these messages and you know you're talking about um you know taking that little baby home with you that little simulated baby and all the nurturing and i had to go through that at age yeah 16 and it was a crazy life experience i don't regret having my daughter and i love her to bits um but i do think even if it would have been you know stuff like forget the abortion topic but where abortion comes into play teaching kids about using condoms and proper health sex education that doesn't yeah. involve stay away from it and you know if yeah that's your main message it's really unhelpful and also you know that getting contraceptives other than condoms is is not that difficult i mean i don't know i can't speak to how it is in canada but um if you as a woman as a young woman in high school are completely reliant on your partner to prevent a pregnancy, then that's a lot of pressure you're putting on them. And a lot of teenage boys, you know, young men, don't want to wear condoms because, like, it doesn't feel the same. Or, um, like you said, there's a stigma attached to having a condom in their pocket. It's it, it, it marks them as being impure. And... As a woman, you can take control of your own uh, family planning and go out and get birth control. And this is something that I learned in um, my, my sex education class, my marriage and family class in high school, was that I could go to Planned Parenthood and I didn't need to show them proof of insurance and they would give me affordable um, birth control. And then I didn't That's have amazing. to worry about... Um, you know, oh, please wear a condom, please. Okay, like, I don't want to kill the mood, so I'm not going to push it that hard. Or, like, I'm not going to be a prude and say, like, I can't have sex with you because you're not wearing a condom. Like, you know, th- leaving it in in the hands of only the man is, like, really hard. But as a teenager, you, you, you don't understand, like, necessarily, unless you've been educated, that there are options beyond just condoms um, that I wasn't aware of, you know, until I took that class. So... 
I, I can see how it directly affected my life. And I could also see, you know, my mom got pregnant fairly young, not as young as um, you were, Gail, um, when you had your, your first child, but my mom got pregnant in college. And my mom and my dad um, at that time were very conservative Catholic. Um, and they were dating, they weren't married. And um, I don't know exactly how long they were dating for, but they decided to have me. And I wonder, you know, I'm obviously grateful for my life and my you know, chance to hang out with y'all in this world. But like, it's, I wonder if they had access to that sort of education, how different would their lives be today? Um, You know, if I didn't have access to that education, how different would my life be? Um, So education is super important, I guess, is my, my overall point. And it's so it's, it's such an important point. And it gets so overshadowed by that emotionalism of like, well, you wouldn't be alive, Vicky, today. What if you were murdered? What if I murdered my daughter? Like, that ends up being the talking point. Then I wouldn't have an just... opinion about it. Like, <laughs> but I, would, just... I wouldn't be alive. But it's this sort of trying to say that, like, okay, because you value your life and I value my daughter, then therefore we can't even think through what makes sense for a community of people. Like, I think one status, um, statistic I came across was that the majority of abortions end up happening in the non-white community. It's in your in your black community and your in your people and your people of color communities, and they have the least amount of access to healthcare as it is. They are already severely impacted by a lack of access to healthcare. So when we're making these laws, who are we really talk? When we talk about preventing abortions or having babies when you're not ready to have a baby, which people group are we targeting? Who are, what, what is this, like, let's dig a little bit and see which groups are going to be the most impacted by these decisions. And what does that, when you're talking about your mom and quality of life and yourself and quality of life, when you're talking about a, a whole community, a specific people group, and how that affects their chances to go ahead in society, to advance their careers, to to be able to, to keep jobs and to, you know, to make decisions for their own health the way that they want to and how this impacts them. Like the topic of abortion is it's it actually specifically affects specific individuals yeah. and specific communities and disproportionately to other communities. And that's something that often gets completely left out when it's people are trying to make this a moral issue about they're saving lives. And yeah. So I think um, we could totally talk for an entire additional episode on this topic, which um, we will. So uh, stay tuned next week. We're going to continue the conversation um, on this, I think, very important topic, especially given uh, where we are currently um, politically in the United States and even um, across the world. So um, thanks again for listening. Um, I think that uh, that does it for today's episode. Um, Tune in next time.